Church. So verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And there he's referring to the Gentiles. Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplift arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. I'm going to stop there again because we have to tackle this. And it sounds harsh. God just took out these seven nations and then put the Israelites there. Well, we need to remember a couple things. We need to, rem- and here's where we're going to remember it from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9. Let me read to you verses 4 through 6. God said this Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. So in just three verses, 4, 5, and 6, Deuteronomy chapter 9, three times he says, it's not because of your righteousness, it's not because of your righteousness, it's not because of your righteousness. It's because of two things. One, because of their wickedness. And two, because God is going to keep the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the two reasons. But when we talk about that wickedness, you need to understand the extent of that wickedness. The extent of that wickedness was in their worship of false gods. They made human sacrifice, and they sacrificed their children and their babies to their false gods. And because of their extreme wickedness, you know, along with a host, you can imagine if they're doing that, they're also committing every other sin under the sun. And so because of that wickedness, God drives them out. <clears throat> so verse 20. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet and afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when God had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. And so, wow, in like six verses, Paul here gives 
the, a majority of the history of Israel to this point. There's a lot more he can say, but again, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Jewish people who know all the history. I mean, the law and prophets are being read in the synagogue every single Sabbath day, you know, extensively. Um, so all the people are, know these, the history and these stories, okay? And also the Gentiles who feared God, were, you know, who had converted um, to, to follow Yahweh to begin with, they have now heard all of these stories as well. So the whole audience has a context for their understanding. And so he's able to be very short in his giving of this history. And we need to remember that there's a time and a place when you're speaking with people and they have a certain level of context, you can summarize briefly and quickly a lot of things. If somebody doesn't have any context, you have to start sometimes in a different place. He doesn't, I mean, for example, just very quickly here, he doesn't have to do anything convincing these people that there's a God. I mean, that's not any part of the conversation. They all already understand and know and agree to, to that reality. But if you're dealing with people who are agnostics, you can't start there. You can't just start there. You've got to start somewhere else. And we see also that throughout Paul's ministry, he's very aware of who he's talking to and the audience and where he needs to begin the message and what points he needs to emphasize. And so here, one of the things he wants to emphasize is what he's really getting at and his whole purpose for what he said so far is to get to the promise that there is a Savior, that there is a Messiah who will come and that he has come and that John the Baptist is the one who has prepared the way from him for him. And he, and he again, shows the humility of John the Baptist as his course, as his life was coming to an end. It came to an abrupt end, remember, as he was beheaded. But he says, Behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of feet, of whose feet I am not worthy to loosen. He also said of Jesus, He must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist is a great example for us of what our perspective needs to be before the Lord. That He loves me, and, he, and He's my Savior and King, and He, you know, He lifts me up. But at the same time, in my humanity, you know, I know that I'm not worthy to unloosen his sandal. And the other side of it, again, in our, our human flesh, in our propensity, our desire to build ourselves up, to be viewed as higher, we see that John the Baptist, in his role, says he must increase and I must decrease and how much do we need to say that in our lives how much more joy how much more fulfillment how more more purpose how much more can God use us in our lives if we say Jesus you must increase and I must decrease and we go back to that reality that there can only be one king in your life you are Jesus. Me or Jesus. So many times we want to have two kings. And therefore we end up with a divided kingdom. We end up with Jesus is king and I'm king. 
Sometimes I say, Jesus, you can sit on the throne, but a lot of times I want to go sit on the throne. But what that is, is the usurping of authority that's not really ours. But yet, we do have the power, and we have been given the prerogative each and every day to say, today I'm on the throne, and I do what I want, and I make my decisions. Or we say, Jesus, you increase, I decrease, I submit to your will. Just show me what it is, and I'll do it. That's a hard prayer to pray. And that's a hard thing. And it's something that we can sing, and it's something that we can say. But in practical reality, it's very difficult to practice. Jesus, you're king. You say, I do. And in fact, we can only do that not through working harder, as we've said time and time again. We can't do it harder. We do it through surrender. Through surrender. Verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. And now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings. That promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us their children, in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We'll stop there for a moment, and we'll just hit a couple things. Again, he gives that story of Jesus, that Jesus came, he was innocent, yet the scriptures said that you know, there would be one who would be um, beaten for our iniquities, that by his stripes we are healed, that there would be one who would suffer and die in our place. But we also, and as we'll see as we go further, there are the prophecies of the, of the resurrection of Jesus, that he would be resurrected, and not only would he be resurrected, but that he would also be lifted up on high, and that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He would be exalted. He'd be resurrected, and he would be exalted. Now, many people um, have this hang-up. We have this hang-up when we see these words, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And there's a reason that we have the hang-up. It's because usually when we think of begotten, especially as we've read in the Old Testament or even in the genealogy of Jesus, you know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And so our natural thinking when we hear the word begat or begotten is to think biologically. Because that is a sense in which it's often used in the scriptures. But that is not the only sense in which the word is used or to be understood. I can explain that very simply in another word that we often use biologically. Son or daughter. We often use that biologically, right? But not always. Take, for example, um, Simeon, who is called Niger. And we could say about him, Simeon is a son of Africa. 
We could say that about him. We could also say that about Lucius. Was from Cyrene in North Africa. We could say he's a son of Africa. Now, that doesn't have anything to do biological, right? That has to do with geography. It means that the person came out of, came forth from. Okay, that's the... That's the understanding that, that is there. It has not, not a biological tinge to it at all. It's just a difference in how we use the words in, in a, another context, right? So the same thing is true when it comes to begotten. We should not be thinking about that phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you, in a biological sense. We should think about it in terms of the father appointing for a specific purpose, the Messiah, the anointed one, the, re- the risen king over everything. And that's the proper way to think about that. But because so many lack that understanding and the lack or, or unwillingness to think about a, a word, you know, in a, in a different sense, in a different context, there ends up being a lot of confusion. And so people think biological when they shouldn't think biological about that at all. Um, you know, so that's just something to keep in, in mind and to have an understand. But hopefully now you have an illustration that you can use if you're explaining it to someone else, you know, how we use these different words and, and these different terms. Um, and you can help remove that lack of understanding from someone. So in verse 34, he says, And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. What's really cool here is that Paul is using the same, some of the same verses and some of the same line of reasoning that we read in Acts chapter 2 when Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And so you might, some of that might resonate and you know, be reminded of. Verse 36, Paul goes on to explain this. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that this man is preached to you the forgiveness, through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you, which could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken to you in the prophets has come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Habakkuk, that's from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. And so Paul uses this opportunity to speak about God's salvation. And he's saying, forgiveness, it's available to you through this Jesus, through this man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah Salvation is available to you, the forgiveness of your sins. By him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. But then he also gives a warning. So he gives that opportunity and says, salvation is available to you. And then he says, beware, lest you be like those who hear the truth and reject it, even though it's declared very plainly and very clearly to them. And with that comes a reality. 
that two people side by side will hear the message of God, of God's forgiveness and opportunity for salvation. And one will say, yes, Lord, I believe. And the other will say, that's crazy talk. Again, our, our mission is to make sure that every man, woman, and child has the opportunity to hear the message of Jesus Christ. But we can twist no one's arm. We can force no one. Any attempt to do that is futile. You know, people can create false professions of faith, but why? what's the purpose and what's the point in that? Regardless of, quote-unquote, the religion, I've never understood it, how it benefits and that's just all about power and control. But we're not about power and control. We're not about that. We're about opportunity and freedom. And giving people opportunity to, to follow Jesus and to believe in him. That's what we're about. That's what we're about. And yes, we would beg. We would plead. We would get on our hands and our faces before men before women, before even children, is that we beg you to believe in our Messiah, Jesus the King. We beg you to do that. But at the end of the day, as ambassadors of Jesus, we are not able to do more than beggars. We can plead with people. And that's that humble place that we are to take. That we are to take. And yes, we can show the intellectual logics of all that we believe. And we can map it all out, you know, for people that this makes more sense than anything else. I'm I'm there with you. I I 100% agree with that. But at the end of the day, for a person to have what we have, there has to be a surrender. There has to be a surrender. And that question that you can ask, if you want to cut to the chase on it, with another human being in their heart, just say, before we proceed further in these intellectual conversations and you know the attempt to show you the, the proofs of what we believe and all of this, I just have one simple question for you. If your, if your logical barriers are removed and they're not there anymore and it's clear to you that Jesus is the Savior and that he is the King, will you surrender and submit to him for your life? Because if the answer, friends, if the answer to that is no, no, I won't, what is the point in all the intellectual exercise? Now, if the person says, yes, yes, I would, well, by all means, proceed. The question is, if, if all of your intellectual barriers were removed, and, you, and it was shown to you that Jesus is the Savior, that he is the King, you know, would you believe in him? Would you surrender your life to him? Would you seek to follow him with your whole life? Because a lot of times... There's a lot of smoke screens get put up. There are some who do have in true intellectual 
doubts and questions. I mean, we've all had our own intellectual doubts and questions, right? Of course we do. We're human. But so many times the issue isn't something to do with science. The issue has something to do with sin. Science a lot of times is a smokescreen. You know, a a scientific objection a lot of times is a smokescreen to... I don't want to have to say, okay, you're God, and you, this is how you want me to live, and then I'm going to submit to your authority. A lot of times it's not an intellectual issue, it's an authority issue. Who's going to be the authority? And if I can maintain to be the authority, you know, a lot of people don't want to surrender that. And so what gets thrown out there, because that's, you know, people don't necessarily want to say that, though. Because that doesn't sound, you know, that sounds maybe a little too prideful. So, you know, we'll just throw some intellectual, I got these intellectual hangups and how can you believe about this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, and there are, we also have to give room for a lot of people believe there's all these intellectual hangups because they've been taught by others that there are all these intellectual hangups. It's not something that they went and discovered on their own. They were just told you can't trust the Bible. Or they were just told that believing that God is a creator is nonsense. So they were just told these things. And so sometimes we do have to do the work to undo some of that, you know, in their lives. You know, there's clearly a place for apologetics. But what I want us to be careful of is that we don't only do the apologetics where we fail to challenge the person's heart. That we're only challenging the mind and we fail to challenge the heart. We need to challenge the heart as well. And if the heart is unwilling, you can, you know, whatever you do with the mind is at a certain point not going to matter. Um, Let's see what happens here and we'll finish it. Goodness. As they went out, the people begged that these, might, these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jewish leaders saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's from Isaiah 49.6. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All right, we're going to stop there for a moment. And this morning, I'm sorry, folks, if it feels like you might be drinking from a fire hydrant. You know, whatever you can handle, handle. If you can just take it right in the face and take it all, you know, and get a lot in, that's great. If you need to put a cup there and then just take a sip and then come back for another cup later, that's okay, too. Because there's just a lot of stuff in all of this. There's a lot going on in Acts chapter 13. And so, you know, this kind of gets into one of those theological things concerning God's election, human free will. I uh, saw an illustration I thought was, was very helpful on this. 
Because again, verse 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And so there comes that question again, God's election, you know, human free will. Um, and it was said that we have a tendency in the West, um, we have a tendency to look at like a particular star. And we'll, you know, we'll look at the sky and we'll focus on a particular star. And sometimes we'll miss that that star is part of a constellation of stars. And so, you know, what are you looking at? Are you looking at the star or are you looking at the constellation? And so because we tend to look at one star a lot of times uh, when it comes to, you know, looking at things in the scripture, we, look at, we tend to look at one star at a time. Let me give you an illustration of that. So when it comes to God's holiness and God's love, we look at it and we go, well, God is holy. And that's true. And we'll look at it, though, and we'll define a lot of things by that holiness. And then, you know, someone else may look at it and go, God is love. And just look at that, God is love, and focus on on that. Boom, 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 boom. All the things about that. And sometimes go so far in those, of that understanding that God is love, put that over and against the fact that God is holy. Or on the flip side, be so emphasized on that God is holy, over and against the fact that God is love. But we need to see that God is holy and God is love. That those are not opposed to each other, that those are part together part of who God is. We do that also with lots of other things. For example, is Jesus equal with God the Father or, or is he subservient to him? You know, it's a false question. The answer is both. You know, he, he is equal to and in his you know human life ministry he was <laughs> subservient to. It's both. Um, and so as a, here's another one for you. Is Jesus fully God or fully man? Again, both is the answer to that. And we can kind of get uncomfortable, um, especially when we've kind of, we have a tendency to understand things in the either or context, you know, way of thinking that some things, some things are and, and there's other things in our world that everybody wants to say is and that aren't and, you know, if that makes sense. But, um, and so we have this question, you know, does God elect or do humans have free will? And the answer biblically is both. And so we can have a struggle with that. And so one of the problems that we have in our struggle with that is, again, you know, we'll take one verse like this and go, it's all about election. You know, you go to 1 Timothy 2 and you read that and go, well, it's all about free will. And you go, you know, John 3, 16 and go, all oh, it's about free will. And then you pick a verse in, you know, the verse in Romans and go, it's all about election. And you sit there like hopping back and forth between two positions when it's a, you know, both, both and are true. Okay, and we need to understand that as best that we can. But there is a limit to, to our ability to understand it. I can, I can have a certain level of understanding even to the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and yet there's also a limit to my ability to understand that because I have a human capacity that is limited. But when it comes to election, we do need to understand something very important, something very consistent in the Bible about election. That election is always for the benefit of others. I want you to really keep that in your mind and note of that in your mind. When Israel was elected, part of their election, we see in Isaiah 49, 6, was that they would be a light to the Gentiles. They didn't always fulfill that election, that purpose that God had for them, that appointment that God had for them, but that was always to be part 
of what they were to be about. Jesus was elected to go to the cross to be our Savior. Okay, so that's a different type of election there. But he was elected to go to the, go to the cross to be our Savior. Paul was elected to be a missionary to the Gentiles. So election is never in, an end game. Election, election is always the beginning of responsibility to others. But in a lot of the theological thinking about it, when election becomes an end game, then it becomes this debate about in and out and eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and you know, all of those sorts of things versus what we see as it in the scripture, the beginning of responsibility to others. And we see this even in the very next verse. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Well, who was spreading that word throughout the whole region? It's pretty obvious to me that it's the people in, that were just described in verse 48. That they aren't holding that in for themselves, but they're taking that and spreading that throughout. Verse 50, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, just two notes here. One, that is important, again, as the Word of God was spreading throughout the whole region. That's awesome. That's what we're to be about. Also, you know, the the leading women and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul, Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. And I just wanted to make one little note there. Because one of those things in history, in the revisionist history that we have, you know, we're, we're kind of given this history about male and female relations that for all time and in all places, you know, women have been pushed down and, and oppressed and have never had any power or authority or this or that or the other thing. And yet consistently, when you look at actual history and when you look at biblical history throughout, I mean, here these women are not using their power in a good way. But they still have power, right? You know, and so even in a, even in a, in the Roman world, you know, the Roman Empire, first century, you know, you have these very powerful women who were able to oppose Paul and Barnabas. the The point isn't in how they use their power, but that they that they had it, and I think that that's an important thing, and and, and it's one of those things that's just not going to be consistent throughout history. You know, it's one of those things that in different times and different places, there's going to be a, a pushing down and a lifting up and all those things. But, you know, I just want to caution as we think about history and, and realities and the past and everything. You know, we, we want to just be able to make these blanket statements. This was like this. Well, and the reason that we want that is because that's simple. Our brains can just easily put that into a category and we go, okay. And have something to do with it. History, reality, humans throughout history, much more complicated. Much more complicated. And how different things were in different cultures at different times. Lots of variations, lots of differences. But one of the benefits that we have is that we can always evaluate culture through the word of God that's given to us. We can always say what's right and what's wrong based on the word of God that's given to us. Because in it, we have the principles. And we have the priorities. We have, we're told how things 
sometimes we're to, we are told how things are or were in the scriptures, but we're also told how things should be. We're told how things should be. And we're told things, and, and, and what's so beautiful about that is that we're told things like, love your neighbor as yourself. And we're also told, love your enemy. And we're also told, to, you know, to, to honor God, and we're, we're told to honor our father and mother, and we're, you know, we're told these different things in the scriptures that are good for us. But at the detriment of humanity... As we see, as, it's, as we read in the book of Judges, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And that a large, in large part is where our world is today. And that is why our world so much needs the gospel, needs the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation and forgiveness that God offers. Because when everyone just seeks to do what is right in their own eyes, and then you have you know, group think and group mentality, and you, can see, you see this sway back, and forth, and the people who used to be against something 10 years ago in politics are now all for it because the poll number has changed from 48% to 52%. And so their position now has massively moved because 4% of the population moved, and now we got a majority on something, on some issue where we used to have a minority. And so for them, and for so many, it has nothing to do with reality. It has nothing to do with what's true and what's right and what's good. It just has to do with what has 52%. And I'll go with that because that's the path of least resistance. But with it, and with all of these things that we see throughout the scriptures, and as you meet human after human after human, the question is purpose or no purpose? Purpose or wrong purpose? Purpose or uncertain purpose, but we have a purpose to worship and follow God, and we have a purpose to share with others that your life is valuable and meaningful, but it finds its most value and its, and its greatest meaning when you surrender to Jesus and walk with him. So yes, just as you are as a human being made as a creation of God, you have an intrinsic value, but man, do you miss out if you don't... Woman, do you miss out if you do not surrender and fall in love with the Savior of the universe who is also your creator? And that's our message of of hope and encouragement and exhortation for our world that it desperately needs to hear. And so my encouragement is that we see with spiritual eyes and hear with spiritual ears. And when the person comes to you and, and that doesn't know the Lord and says, I'm having this problem in this relationship, or I'm not sure what I would do about this, that you move that conversation past the temporal and the immediate and that issue, and you get to Jesus and the real meaning of life. And you can do that in his power and in his name. You can do it. And so let's do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. And Lord, there's so much going through our minds and our hearts right now as we tried to unpack this Acts chapter 13 that just has so much in it. And Lord, there's so much more. We thank you for the deepness and the richness of your word. Give us understanding. But Lord, help us more to, than to understand intellectually Help us to apply practically. 
Continue to grow this church as a church that you desire it to be. It is yours. We surrender it to you. We submit it to you, God, and we say, do with us as you please, dear Jesus, for your glory and for your honor. And as we take this bread and this cup this morning, we honor you, Jesus, and we say thank you that you love us, that you died for us, that you are a risen king. In your name, Jesus, we pray it.